0: Welcome to the Artelligence podcast. Live Arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Mannaker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the LiveArt app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. The New York auctions begin this week with just over 2,000 lots on offer. The combined low estimate is nearly $1.37 billion. If we remove the Allen collection from last November's sales, we're still at about the same level in terms of the value of the low estimate. If that doesn't surprise you, you're lucky. That means you didn't spend the three months after November's auctions waiting for a global recession to begin. During that period, little art traded hands. Now that the economic slowdown hasn't happened yet, it would seem as though the art market is trying to make up for lost time and take advantage of this Goldilocks moment. Pre-sale guarantees seem to be down, but the freight train of collections and estates hasn't stopped. In this podcast, we're going to hear from the specialists at Christie's, Phillips, and Sotheby's about some of the lots selling this month. There's so much high-quality art on offer, we're not going to get to it all. But here are some of the interesting stories. In addition to the $45 million Klimt waterscape, a $30 million Louise Bourgeois bronze spider, Gerhard Richter's last and largest color chart painting, and a stunning Wayne Thiebaud candy counter. Sotheby's has the collection of legendary music executive Mo Austin. Filled with important works by Joan Mitchell, René Magritte, Willem de Kooning, Pablo Picasso, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and many more artists, Austin was a rare creative executive whose passion for art Paralleled his professional life. Here's Sotheby's Diane Brooke Lampley to explain.
1: Always a pleasure to step inside the collecting journey and artistic vision of an individual and get to experience their unique eye. That pleasure is so much greater and more profound when that person happens to have been. A creative genius and artistic innovator themselves who definitively influenced pop culture of the last 50 years. It's something that's commented on in all the testimonials by the artists who he worked with, um, the musical artists who he worked with, that he was artists first, he was an advocate for the artists, and secondarily that He loved art, visual art, just as much or almost as much as he loved music, and he loved it his whole life. In this collection, we see a journey. Um, These are works that he was collecting throughout his life. Um, Some he's had for 40 odd years, and some he acquired um, quite recently. Um, He was reacting to the art of his time or the art of each decade that he lived through. Um, So you really see that arc throughout the collection. It's so interesting to see how Vanguard, because you know he was prescient in making these choices, but now also current and trendy, um, his selections were. Uh, these are all the artists people are still collecting today. And they weren't all the artists that were at the top of everybody's lips when he was collecting them.
0: From Sinatra to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Mo Austin's reputation rested on his ability to spot talent. I asked Brooke how that translated into his art collecting.
1: He clearly knew how to pick them in both genres. So you have Fleetwood Mac and Joan Mitchell, and then you have like Basquiat and Prince. He just got it. Like he clearly saw, understood how to perceive
0: talent. Austin's heirs also seem to have inherited that level of confidence.
1: The entire collection for us is a, a great market moment um, because also it's not guaranteed, um, and uh, this is you know an instance of the consigner you know believing in the quality of their works of art and presenting them in a, a very traditional way with very attractive estimates.
0: Leading the collection are two works by Rene Magritte, 1949's Le Domaine Darnheim with a $15 million estimate and one of the early examples of Magritte's famous night scene under a blue sky. The series is known as the Empire of Lights.
1: Of course I'm excited about the Empire de Lumiere. This series by Magritte is not only the most famous series of his career, um, it's one of the most iconic images in art history. It's an image that of uncanny, of irony, um, of the the real and the seemingly impossible, that is readily understood globally in any context. It transcends all borders, and I think that's what part of what makes it so popular and desirable. Um, It's at the top of global collectors' wish lists. We, of course, set a record for Magritte uh, with another Ampère de Lumière painting that we sold not long ago for $80 million. Um, But I'm just as excited by this one uh, because it's more residentially scaled and the color is so vivid. This picture just pops off a wall. I just think that it's really digestible. And then the other picture by Magritte is equally uh, fantastic and I think really shows him to be a great practitioner. Uh, It's very richly painted and incredibly detailed. And I think it shows off a level of technical precision that isn't always as evident um, in his works and that people are really drawn to often in the gouaches, which can be quite precise and make huge prices for works on paper. So I think the combination of those two works is really interesting for the market.
0: Range is what distinguishes Austin in music. It also characterizes his collection, which includes a 2015 painting by Cecily Brown, who is the subject of a show currently at New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art.
1: I think it's a really exciting time to um, be seeing a Cecily Brown of this quality um, on the market. It's a fabulous painting.
0: To many, Cecily Brown is a conscious continuation of the New York School of Painting's struggle to resolve the relationship between figuration and abstraction. Willem de Kooning was the foremost artist of that period, and he wrestled with a similar challenge. Last season, Sotheby's had a market triumph with de Kooning's 1950 work on paper collage from the David Solinger collection. It made 33.6 million. Austin had a slightly earlier de Kooning work on paper, two figures from 1946, that is estimated at five million.
1: I appreciate how the Solinger price helps promote earlier de Kooning works and particularly works on paper, but I think it always boils down to quality. The market is always there for quality. And, um, you know, someone made a comment to me recently that I really appreciated that de Kooning is similar to Picasso. He was trying to compete with Picasso. And in that sense, he evolved throughout his career and he has different periods, just like Picasso.
0: Brooke went on to explain that both artists have markets that break down along those period lines. The market dynamics operate somewhat independently for each period. But the mention of Picasso got us talking about some other works by Picasso in the various owners' sale. Though I should mention here, before we leave the subject of Austin, that he too owned some very interesting Picassos.
1: Yeah, we have an interesting Picasso survey upstairs because we have the great reclining figure of Jacqueline. But we also have the small 1932 work. And they're an interesting counterpoint to each other, actually. 1932 is widely regarded as a high period, um, apex moment for Picasso. And um, this work I love because it has all of the iconography and also the palette that you most readily associate with Marie Therese. So you have the lavender and the yellow, and then you have this exquisite little necklace, and it's very sensual, and it really strongly evokes the the rapture of this moment. But more and more people are looking to the later works because you can still get masterpieces from the 60s where it's you really, a Picasso of this scale from an earlier period would be a multiple of this price. So I actually think this is very reasonably offered. It also shows Picasso really looking at art history. This is Picasso doing Velazquez, doing Goya. This is, you know, Titian. This is Picasso as the I'm the contemporary version of all of you and I can do it just as well and better.
0: Picasso taking on all challengers from art history is probably as good a place to leave Sotheby's as any. We haven't mentioned the great works by Nicole Eisenman, Simone Lee, Yoshitomo Nara, Christopher Wool, and Keith Haring. There's one more collection to speak about, the Press Collection at Christie's, but let's hold off on that until we get to Emily Kaplan. Isabella Loria, Christie's head of the 2021 Evening Sale, has the top lot of the week, by estimate. Her Basquiat is expected to sell for $45 million or more.
2: The painting is titled El Gran Espectaculo, The Nile. It's also been referred to as the history of the Black people, which I think is a key point here, um, not only in literature, but also in exhibition history. Basquiat was only 22 years old, and to think that he's taking on such a Loaded personal historical narrative and really attacking it at age 22 at such a big scale is indicative of where he was in his career and having that kind of bravery to really push and, and question how this story's been told and, and how as a black artist, you know, having faced so much racism in New York in the eighties, being able, being the one to tell that story at that age is really incredible. I think, you know, season after season, we have amazing baskets come to market. For me, this has been a real moment of awe. And, and you know, I still get chills when I look at the painting. The painting is loaded with incredible amounts of symbolism. I think it's really rare to see a painting that's supposed to be, or we assume is supposed to be read sequentially. You know, Basquiat has always been very all over the place, but in this one, it feels so deliberate, the way that he's ordered the canvases and how he's painted each from left to right. I think, you know, the fact that it really is a story. He's telling us, his version of a story that's been told in many different ways in history, starting on the left with with these African masks. And, you know, I was even looking at it closely this morning before a tour and it's, he's outlined the mouth in pink and you don't really see that much pink for, for Basquiat. You don't see these crazy blues that he pulls out, you know? You see kind of the blue or the red or the yellow, but here you have such a vast spectrum. So as a colorist, it's really incredible. And then as a story, it's, it's such a personal narrative, but he's really pushing the boundaries and, and connecting the then with the now for him. And that now for him is still a now for us. So I think that that really encapsulates this painting and, and bringing it to the market at this particular point in our own shared history is, is really impactful and important.
0: Another now for us, Loria points out, is representation for female artists. With so many important male artists name-checked in the Newhouse and Feinberg collections, Loria and her colleagues decided to focus on women.
2: So when we went to the drawing board to figure out what were we going to go after, what was going to be our focus, we decided that let's actually try to focus on, on women across all points of their careers. So obviously the pillars of this sale beyond the Basquiat being, of course, you know, the masterpiece of our entire auction season is really you know, Kusama, Cecily, Simone. Those are kind of the three... Very blue chip, very established, and then we went out and and started to put together a sale that includes artists like Danielle McKinney, who's a younger artist, you know, clearly looking at Lynette and being influenced by Lynette. But her auction debut, and and Robin F. Williams, Louise Bonnet, and then you also see Miriam Kahn, who's a much older artist in her 80s that does isn't usually sold in New York or in the U.S., but someone that there's been a lot of attention around. So this is the, really the first time we have a sale that is more than 50%, an evening sale that's more than 50% women in the history of Christie's. And I want to say that's the top number across all houses.
0: As we discussed with Brooke, the most prominent female artist at this moment may be Cecily Brown, by virtue of the show at the Met. Brown's work has the prominent tension between figuration and abstraction. She makes work in different sizes from intimate canvases to monumental ones. The Austin example is what the auction house is called domestic or appropriate for hanging in a living room. Christie's has some quite small works, but also this very large one. You'll hear Lauria allude to the other tension in Brown's work. That's the one between explicit sexuality and abstraction.
2: Cecily's market has been continuing to grow season after season. This is the single largest canvas to come up on the market. I think a big point, you know, people are like, it's huge. And the truth is, yes, it's big, but it's not restrictive. You know, it's only a hundred and so inches tall. It's not at a point where you can't live with this painting. And it's one of those paintings that you stand in front of it and it really is a blow-your-socks-off painting. I think she strikes the perfect balance between abstraction and figuration. I think the title of the painting is is quite special. It's called Untitled, um, Beautiful and Damned, which is an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel, the one right before The Great Gatsby, and also you know, the subject of that novel is excess and hedonism and all that. So I think that it really, you know, it's almost what she's blurred in the, in the composition, she's kind of given or alludes to in the title, you know? So um, the painting is just beautiful. I mean, I invite anyone to stand in front of it. The first time I saw it, it really was like a wow, you know, goosebumps, that kind of thing.
0: At their preview, Christie's has placed a large bronze work by Simone Lee in the same gallery as the massive Cecily Brown painting. The two artists couldn't be more different, and yet, as Laurie explains, they seem to play off of each other.
2: This sculpture is, for me, a, a real feat. They're incredibly, incredibly rare. Ours is incredibly special in that not only is it the same edition that is the gift to the Whitney, but also the actual composition of the work itself. She's always been influenced by architecture and and you know African mosques and things like that. And. I think the fact that these sticks were used to climb up to like fix things, you know, in these structures is so like emblematic of her practice. It's like she's this, she's depicting black women in positions of, as healers, protectors, beyond just positions of power, but also like who black women are to their, to the people around them. And so that kind of adding of the sticks to the skirt really adds that kind of nature that, look, come, I will help you, you know, and I think that that's quite special. Um, the blue patina is crazy. I mean, when we first saw the, the the sculpture in person, it was under very different circumstances, and it looked black. It looked regular bronze. And now it arrived here, and we were like, "Wait, this thing is blue, like fully blue." We knew there were tinges of blue, and but and the, when you place it outside, it's bright blue. It's it's actually incredible.
0: We've got to keep moving because there's still a lot more to hear about. Let's jump to Phillips before we finish up back at Christie's with a few surprises. Phillips continues to carve out a distinctive position for itself in the larger art market. This season, it has a large Banksy canvas of an image that appeared on a London wall during an exhibition of Basquiat's work. Jean-Paul Engelin explains.
3: It comes from a uh, a private collection on the West Coast, and um, it suddenly came indeed out of nowhere, just like it did in 2017 when it just appeared um, around the corner at the Barbican at the time of Boom For Real, the Basquiat show that, funnily enough, Phillips sponsored. The Boom For Real show happened um, in London at the Barbican in 2017. And then one morning around the corner, this image appeared um, together with a, a smaller second image with which Banksy turned into addition. Um, it's like a Ferris wheel, like the London Eye, but then with the crown of um, Basquiat. So we are we are also selling that. But this painting, um, or this, the mural then appeared, um, which is obviously a take on uh, the famous 1982 Basquiat painting, Johnny Pomp. Um, where you have the character standing with the dog and the, and the Johnny Pump, the fire hydrant. Um, and obviously this, um, Baskia being, um, a street artist and making social commentary, um, made this extremely powerful of, you know the subject of the of of the painting suddenly out on the outside of the building and being frisked by the coppers. Luckily enough, uh, the mural is still there. It's behind plexiglass. It's safe for future generation. It's called uh, a Banksy So the Banksy then uh, was made also by Banksy into a painting, in a way how the Warhol Basquiat collaborations. This also kind of feels like a collaboration, clearly, uh, between Basquiat and and Banksy.
0: That Banksy has an $8 million estimate. If you can't tell by the accent, JP is Dutch, which is oddly relevant to the two early Yaya Kusama works, which were created when the artist was living at Gallery Ores in The Hague.
3: They were a famous gallery, um whatever famous meant in the 60s, in the art world in Holland. And they had seen uh, Kusama's work and got her over in 1964, then substantially 1965, to do a solo exhibition. So this was actually Kusama's first solo show in in Europe. Um, you sort of had the axis going on of Germany and, and Holland. Uh, where there were a lot of these minimal artists and conceptual artists were working and all, um, inspiring each other, whether it was, uh, Manzoni and Fontana, Yves Klein, Ucker, they were all obviously speaking to each other. And then, um, she got her first show. She was living in New York at that stage and she asked the gallery to basically provide her with a sewing machine, machine fabrics and all kinds of material. And, um, Out of that, she made the show and she made these two paintings, like sculptural paintings. And while she was making them, all these phalluses, basically, that are being produced, embroidered, were laying around her on the floor. And um, is it a coincidence that she then, a year later in Venice, at the Venice Biennale, makes like one of the first infinity rooms with all of them together. So... um, it is an extraordinary story. They were, they, were, they were collected by Agnes and Fritz Becht, who were um, uh, collectors in, in Holland of young material, of young material, of young contemporary art. Uh, they met her. They very much liked each other. Um, they attended the happenings. That Kusama did in uh, uh, 65 and uh, 66 and 67 in Holland. Um, there is a there were there is a photograph of one of these happening in the Birds Club uh, jazz club in Amsterdam, where she put, paints dots on naked man, and and there is a picture of Agnes and Fritz in the background standing there. The Bechts basically owned these works since so they're the first owner. They own them since 65, um, and they have lent them to an incredible amount of exhibitions. They, um, uh, they have been in five major Kusama retrospectives. They have been asked again for a show in the Museum of Schiedam in
0: Holland. The Kusamas are very much in demand by museums because of their rarity. Phillips has another very rare work in a painting by Noah Davis, the West Coast artist who died at the age of 32, nearly a decade ago.
3: That's our lot one. Uh, I'm, I'm personally a big fan of Noah Davis, world record prize, been achieved. There's so few works on the market. Um, this is um, um, a girl laying on a um, on a teddy bear. Um, it's um, never been an auction before. Um, with the whole story about the underground museum, he was such a big cultural impact. All the work, work that Helen Molesworth has been done and, and, and Zwerner, obviously, on Noah Davis. Um, it's the only one on the market. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pleased that we have that.
0: There are 15 Wayne Thibault works in these sales with a combined estimate of around $25 million. That's pretty much what came to auction in all of 2022. In the midst of this Thibault moment, Phillips has a small but stunning landscape painting titled levy and cow
3: you know it's 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 from the early 2000s i believe 2001 um it's one of those paintings where you know the difference between the very sculptural approach in the 60s with the cakes and the cupcakes and you know we also have um red velvet cake in the in, um, in the show um but then, with these later works, you know these landscape, which are so impressionistic, um, and the paint—rather so, than the hard paint that sort of is next to each other—here you've got the flow of paint. It's almost like you—you you feel the flow of the river and these um, and these uh, reflections on them. And I think um, it's a, it's a gorgeous painting. It's absolutely—it's it's as impressionistic as they come uh, for Thibault,
0: I think we'll be talking much more about Thibault after these sales, but now we need to go back to Christie's for the press collection, Agnes Pelton, Henri Rousseau, and of course, more Picasso. The marquee auctions are a period of frenzied activity. One of the bright spots we hope for is the way a lot can suddenly solidify attention around an overlooked or forgotten artist. That seems to be forming around Agnes Pelton's The Fountains, her second abstract work, painted in 1926. I spoke to Christie's Emily Kaplan, who's spearheading their effort to raise awareness of this extraordinary artist.
4: There is a real reappraisal of... Not just Pelton, but the early 20th century female artists that have been overlooked. You know, they were not championed in the same way. They didn't get the same um, representation. Of course, O'Keeffe had Stieglitz advocating for her, but most female artists did not at the time. So Pelton, while she was part of this transcendental painting group, most of her male contemporaries in that group became much more famous than her, even though she was well-known in her lifetime. She exhibited the 1913 Armory Show, which was the the show.
0: (laughs) More recently, Pelton was the subject of a retrospective at the Whitney Museum in New York. Unfortunately, it opened at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic.
4: The show in 2019 and 2020, which was set to open at the Whitney in March, March 13th, 2020, was the, supposed to be the opening day. So I think that could, that was the market moment that nev- never happened. I think that could have been a Hilma off-clint moment.
0: The Fountains carries a $1.5 million estimate. That's nearly 100 times the highest auction price ever achieved for a Pelton. But that doesn't mean collectors haven't discovered Pelton's since The Whitney Show. The private market has been alive with sales, as Kaplan explains.
4: An important factor into our decision to bring a Pelton painting to market, and our pricing was very much informed by what we know about the private market. Um, We know of a number of very major sales of works from um, this period and a little bit later that have transacted in the one and a half to two and a half million dollar range. Most of those were smaller paintings, Vary in quality, so you know. I think some some that were not as significant, and some that were are just as significant. So we're feeling that the people who know, the people who have been involved in those private transactions, feel this price is justified. Um, But what we're aiming to do, of course, with bringing this to public market, is to capture those people and then some, and really increase awareness of her work her um, career, her importance in the art world, and kind of try to blow that up a bit.
0: Okay, let's get back to the last of the big collections we haven't discussed. Allen and Dorothy Press were Chicago traders who first collected German expressionist art and then decided to shift focus to a few contemporary artists they collected in depth.
4: Begun collecting German expressionist pictures, interestingly. Um, that was sort of influenced by Allen's time abroad during the war. And they sold that whole collection in, um, the 80s and decided to start again collecting contemporary art. It wasn't, it didn't suit them any longer and they wanted something more of their time. So they started collecting Ruchet, Gustin, Ken Price, Matisse, and Man Ray, and really saw it as almost a puzzle to fill in. Dorothy famously loved crossword puzzles, so I like thinking of it in that way. She wanted to sort of fill in the gaps. And create these sort of mini retrospective moments for each of these artists and showing a range of techniques, a range of dates, styles, genres, and kind of explore really in-depth these artists' practice.
0: The Press Collection has many works by Ed Ruscha, but one $20 million lot stands out among the rest for its market appeal.
4: The highlight of the collection, and certainly the most Valuable Rouchet is at Rouchet's burning gas station from 1966 to 69, one of only six gas station standard gas stations that he ever painted. Um he actually only, only painted five in the 60s, two of which are um fl- with flames. So this is only one of two paintings where he shows it burning. The other painting has more sort of um characteristically Rouchet looking flames and this one is almost expressionist, um, brushy, a bit more um, smoky, and uh, so with a quite different feeling. This one also is the only one with this beautiful gradation sunset in the background. So there is sort of an eerie, surrealist quality about this one in particular.
0: The collection also contains three important works by Philip Guston. The sale comes at a propitious time, as the long-delayed Gustin retrospective, is now at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C.
4: They started buying Gustin in, in the 90s, but only focused on the figurative paintings. You know, we're talking about them kind of choosing very specifically and finding gaps in their collection, but only focused on the Final decade of Guston's life, which was the most inflammatory, the the most controversial. That's what appealed to them. They liked interesting art, which is very plain to see when you look at the collection. Um, and they so the the earliest painting is the bricks from 1970, which was in that show. Then chair is 1976, which is arguably from the most famous series. Almost all of those paintings are in museums. And then the final painting is pull from 79, which is from the last year of his life. So it really charts the final decade of his life and career um, and the return to figuration, what that meant, tackling some of the darkest themes in both his life and in history and the current political climate he was living in.
0: We've saved some of the most important lots for last, 1932 was a pivotal year for Picasso because of the many paintings he made of Marie Therese Walter. The most famous is La Rêve, but the year began with this work, which first brings Walter into Picasso's paintings via a bust. Christie's Vanessa Fusco explains why this still life isn't just a still life.
5: We really think of it as a portrait. Um, because, of course, it's Marie Therese, and Picasso has inserted her into this still life in the form of a bust. So he's recalling the great series of plaster busts that he did of Marie Therese in 1931. This painting is painted January 18, 1932, so right at the beginning. In late 1931, we start to see him bring Marie Therese in bust form, into the two-dimensional painting. Um, He does a total of six portraits of her in bust form in late 1931, early 1932. 1932 is thought of as Picasso's Year of Wonders. Um, It's really a moment where his painting changed, in large part inspired by Marie Therese. Um, There was a vitality, a sense of energy, a lot of sensuality, great color came back into his work. people want, people desire very much works from this state. Um, the Le Rêve, which you mentioned, was actually hung right below our painting in a 1932 exhibition at the Gallerie Georges Petit in Paris. This exhibition was a big deal for Picasso. He was 50 years old at the time, and the critic, the, you know, the, the world was wondering, who is Picasso? Is he going to be an artist of the past? He invented cubism huge important movement of the 20th century, but what do you do next? I think for him, knowing that pressure plus Turning 50 that year, he really wanted to cement his legacy. Um, so he was very involved in this exhibition. He had a personal hand. He curated everything. He chose specifically which works were to be included. And he did a very interesting salon hang, um, which we've recreated. We've, we've put a photograph of in our exhibition downstairs um, to show how he's mixing the different periods from his work. But also, Nature Mort is hung right above La Rev.
0: The world no longer wonders, who is Picasso? But the artist took a fond interest in the self-taught customs official Henri Rousseau. Long considered an important figure to art historians, Rousseau's work is extremely rare on the art market. Christie's has a major Rousseau, which is a career landmark for someone like Fusco.
5: This is maybe one of the most exciting things, I think, of my entire career to be working with. Um, I never thought I would get to handle a picture like this in an auction house. You're used to interacting with paintings like this in museums, you know, at MoMA, at the Barnes, um, if you're in Paris at the Dorsey, but never in a domestic setting and certainly not within the walls of an auction house. Um, this is one of Rousseau's jungle paintings from the Great Jungle series he did about 24, um, and it's his m- most mature, profound series. Um, our picture is very large scale, as many of the jungle pictures are, and you have a beautiful, serene body of water. It's one of two jungle paintings that actually includes a fresh body of water. The other is the Snake Charmer at the Musée d'Orsay. Um, and you have a beautiful little constellation of flamingos perched in the lower right, um, some figures in the background, and then this very lush vegetation in the back, um, the thick jungle, you know, palm trees. Um, and in the foreground, next to the flamingos, you have these overpowering flowers, painted in pinks and whites and um, yellow. And the juxtaposition of the flowers and the flamingos, the, the scale's completely off. The flowers over overpower, they're much larger than anything else in the scene. And this is really a hint, it's an opening at the fact that Rousseau was not actually in a landscape that looked like this. We know he never left France, so these fantastical landscapes were really complete product of his imagination.
0: You can consider Rousseau one of the first outsider artists. That reliance on his own imagination, Fusco argues, is what makes him so important to later movements like the Surrealists.
5: Rousseau so had no formal training. Um, uh, he, in fact, worked as a toll collector at the gates of the city, collecting you know, taxes for people bringing in goods. And this is what earned him the nickname Le Duanier, um, the customs officer. And Le douanier Rousseau really was a legend among this younger generation of artists. Um, Picasso, of course. Georges Braque, uh, Kandinsky, the Delaunayes collected him. Apollinaire loved him. Apollinaire actually wrote the epitaph. Um, uh, for when he passed away. Um, and I think what they saw in him was this idea of the personal, the artist, and the personal imprint coming into the work. You know, this is not unusual for us looking back on the 20th century, but at the time, what artists were doing was really deconstructing and investigating the objective an object, the landscape, what was in front of them. They weren't creating, they weren't putting their own personal impression into the work. Yet, of course, it's proto-surrealist. The surrealists would adopt and, and champion Rousseau greatly, but that's long after he passed away.
0: Okay, that's it. We've packed a lot of art into a short podcast. There's so much more and we'll try to keep you up to date during the sales and after. If you have not already, please subscribe to our Substack newsletter artelligence.substack.com to stay on top of the auction news. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence podcast edited by Colin Ketchin who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.